السلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى اله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا ما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ان الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا ايها الذين امنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما صليت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما باركت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد respects listeners assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh this is our final dars <coughs> and also the last jumu'ah before ramadan over the past few weeks i've spoken in some detail about many different aspects of ramadan commenting on a few verses of the quran in relation to fasting and ramadan as well as commenting on a few hadith of rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam today i'll just share one final reminder as a summary of what we've discussed so far and i'll just go through a number of verses and a hadith as a final reminder in order to prepare ourselves for the coming month <coughs> allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the quran ya ayyuhalladhina amanu kutiba alaykumus siyam kama kutiba ala alladhina min qablikum la'allakum tattaqun oh believers fasting has been made obligatory for you as it was made obligatory for those who came before you perhaps you may attain taqwa fasting is not new it's nothing alien or strange to humans allah says that it's been made obligatory for us as it was made obligatory for those who came before us fasting in one form or another has always been part of the religious practice and tradition of peoples all over the world and so we shouldn't see it as being strange it has many wisdoms many benefits and the more we learn scientifically and medically we realize that fasting has its immense benefits not only physical but even psychological and for muslims most importantly are the spiritual benefits of fasting but again everything in moderation 
Prophet and even before him, Allah in the Quran, in fact in the very next verse, has made it clear that those who are traveling or those who are ill, they have the concession, they have the option of not fasting, but postponing their, their obligatory fast till another time. And these concessions of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in hadith Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says that Allah loves that people adopt his Allah, Allah, Allah loves that people accept his concessions just as much as he loves that people act on the more determined and resolved and difficult laws of Allah. What that means, this is a very simple and crude translation. In Arabic, we have two terms. One is known as rukhsah, and one is known as azima. Azima is the opposite of rukhsah. Rukhsah means concession. Azima is the opposite. So in the case of someone who is fasting, or let's use another example. If there is an activity, a ruling, or a practice, and in that... Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam have recommended something or prescribed something. But then there are concessions too. So ultimately man has a choice. Either he can accept the concession or he can go ahead with some resolve, with some determination, push himself or herself and act on the original ruling without the concession. So if he or she accepts the concession, that's rukhsah. But if they forego the concession, and act on the original ruling, and push themselves with some resolve and determination, then they act on azimah. So in this hadith, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, Allah loves that his concessions be adopted as much as he loves his azimah to be acted on. So everything in moderation, even fasting, if someone has the ability and the strength, I say this because some people object, that how can fasting be good? or beneficial health-wise and physically, if it can, if it's risky for some people. Well, whenever we speak about fasting, we are speaking about healthy, able-bodied individuals for whom fasting is good and beneficial. And it's no risk or harm to them. It cannot be harmful. Anyone who, for whom fasting is risky and can prolong their illness, or bring about illness, or endanger their health, or even simply because of their weakness and old age. 
Well, Allah and His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam have both categorically and clearly explained that such people do not have to fast. In fact, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam went further. And in the case of one fasting companion who fell down unconscious and the companions were trying to revive him, the Prophet ﷺ saw this and questioned them as to what had happened to him. So the, since they were traveling, the, they informed the Messenger ﷺ that he is fasting. And undoubtedly, it was the heat and the fatigue of journeying, coupled with the fact that he was hungry and thirsty and he was in a state of fasting, which brought about this, his unconsciousness and his ill health. So the Prophet wasallam Categorically stated on that occasion, إِنَّهُ لَيْسَ مِنَ الْبِرِّ That it's not an act of virtue or piety or righteousness to fast whilst traveling. So whenever we speak about fasting and its benefits, its health benefits, its physical benefits, then of course we are speaking about fasting for those individuals who are well, able-bodied, capable and healthy, and for whom fasting with the prescribed limits, i.e. ensuring that they have sahur before beginning their fast, ensuring that they break their fast properly, then for such people, fasting is not of any harm, rather it's of immense physical benefit along with the other psychological benefits. And most importantly, as I said, for Muslims, what is most important for Muslims is the spiritual benefit of fasting, which Allah mentions immediately thereafter. Allah says, لَعَلَّكُمْ تَتَّقُونَ That the wisdom of fasting, as Allah mentions here, is to attain taqwa, to achieve taqwa. That is the purpose of fasting. And we should never lose sight of that. It's a vast topic. The whole of Ramadan is about creating taqwa. Fasting is about creating taqwa. The whole month is about creating taqwa. All the provisions of Ramadan are for the purpose of creating taqwa. And what is taqwa? Taqwa, the most succinct definition of taqwa is not the fear of Allah, that's just part of it. The most succinct definition of taqwa is guarding oneself from the displeasure of Allah. By guarding oneself from the disobedience of Allah. Taqwa means to guard. And taqwa can also mean a guard. It can be used as a verbal noun. As a verbal noun, as a masdar for the Arabic speakers. It means to guard, to protect. And as a noun, as an ism, it means a guard, any form of protection. So a barrier is is a taqwa. A shield is a taqwa. A protective ring is a taqwa. And to guard and to protect, the process of guarding and protecting 
and preventing is taqwa. So that's the original meaning of taqwa. It means to guard, to protect. And when taqwa is used in respect of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, i.e. taqwa in relation to Allah, it means guarding oneself from the displeasure of Allah. And that can only be achieved by guarding oneself from the disobedience of Allah. And that taqwa, that is something similar, although not identical, but very similar to the rank of ihsan. Jibreel came to the Prophet in a very marvelous incident. Marvelous in the sense that the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum spoke of him as coming to the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa Nobody recognized him, therefore he couldn't have been from the city of Medina. But then again, he had no signs of traveling on him. That was strange. He approached the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa addressed him, sat in front of him, and he placed his hands on his knees. And according to one interpretation, this means that Jibreel alayhi salam, whom no one knew that this was Jibreel, and who was who simply seemed like a stranger. He, according to one interpretation, this means that he, Jibreel alayhi salam placed his own hands on the noble knees of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Again, they found this very strange. Then he asked him a few questions, and when he was given the answers, Jibreel alayhi salam or this questioner actually affirmed. And ratified the answers of the Prophet ﷺ and said to him, You have spoken truthfully, you have spoken correctly. So Umar he said that, that we marveled at this man, that he questions the Messenger ﷺ, and then he ratifies his answer. He attests to the answer. So it was only later that the Prophet ﷺ told them. That this was Jibreel, who came to teach you your religion. So he asked him a number of questions. One of them was, what's Islam? Prophet ﷺ explained. The pillars of religion. And then he said to him, what's Iman? So the Prophet ﷺ spoke to him about the articles of faith. Now if we study this very closely, what's apparent is that Islam here, by the explanation of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, is submission and the external manifestation of religion. It's merely external. It's apparent. And then there is some progression from Islam, which is merely external submission, to inner faith. And that's mentioned in the Qur'an too. Of course, in everyday practical usage, the words Islam and Iman are synonymous and interchangeable. So we use mu'min for Muslim and Muslim for mu'min. Iman for Islam and Islam for Iman. And there's no harm in doing that. But strictly speaking, there is a subtle difference between the two. And the difference is that Islam merely refers to external submission. So not every Muslim is a mu'min. 
But undoubtedly every mu'min is a Muslim. For there can be no inner iman and faith without external submission and without the fulfillment of the outward teachings of religion. But just because a person is praying, fasting, giving in charity, or even going to pilgrimage, this does not necessarily reflect inner iman. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Qur'an, قَالَتِ الْأَعْرَابُ آمَنَّا قُلْ لَمْ تُؤْمِنُوا وَلَكِنْ قُولُوا أَسْلَمْنَا وَلَمَّا يَدْخُلِ الْإِيمَانُ فِي قُلُوبِكُمْ Allah refers to a group of Bedouin who said to the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that we have believed iman, we have accepted iman, we have embraced iman, we are mu'min. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said to him, that tell them, قُلْ لَمْ تُؤْمِنُوا You have not become mu'min. You have not embraced iman. وَلَكِنْ قُولُوا Rather say, أَسْلَمْنَا We have become Muslim. I.e. we have submitted apparently. And then Allah makes it very clear. وَلَمَّا يَدْخُلِ الْإِيمَانُ فِي قُلُوبِكُمْ And iman has not yet entered your hearts. On one occasion, a companion, radiyallahu he observed that the Prophet ﷺ had distributed wealth, and he had given it to some, but he had deprived others. And one of the people that he had not given any wealth to, in the eyes of this companion, was very pious. So this grieved him, this disturbed him. So when he was in the presence of the Messenger وسلم, he could not contain himself and he spoke up. And he said, O Messenger of Allah, you gave others but you did not give such and such a person. I do not see him but as a mu'min. So the Prophet وسلم, replied by saying, O a Muslim, I rather say Muslim. That's all he said. But he didn't explain or clarify why he had not given him wealth or made him a recipient in the distribution of that wealth. So the Sahabi, the companion, radiyallahu anhu, fell silent. And then after a short while, he says, I could not contain myself, so I spoke up again. And I said, O Messenger of Allah, you gave others, but you did not give to him. I do not see him but as a mu'min. So again, the Prophet ﷺ replied to him, not with any explanation of why he had not given the wealth, or included him in a share of the wealth, but only with the words, Awa Muslim. I don't say mu'min, say Muslim. Then he fell silent. After a while, he says, I again could not contain myself, so he spoke up again. On the third occasion, the Prophet ﷺ said, Awa Muslim, say Muslim, not mu'min. Then he provided an explanation that when I give wealth, I give to others in order to win over their hearts and to reconcile their hearts. But there are others to whom I do not give, not out of displeasure, but relying on the self-sufficiency and the contentment that Allah has placed in their hearts. I.e., their hearts are content. They do not need winning over. 
They do not need any sort of reconciliation. They do not need any special treatment. Allah has placed, placed faith and contentment and reliance on Allah in, deeply in their heart. So subhanAllah, imagine such a person whose piety the Prophet ﷺ attested to and actually said that I have no need to win, uh, win him over. I have no need to treat him specially. Rather, I know that he is the kind of person who even though he is deprived of wealth, this will have no effect on him because of the qana'ah, the contentment and the self-sufficiency that Allah has placed in his heart. Even for such a person, the Prophet ﷺ taught the other companion, don't claim that you know that he is a mu'min, rather just say a Muslim. So, Jibreel alayhi salam asked the Prophet ﷺ about Islam. He told him about the external acts of religion. Then there is a progression. He moved on to iman, which is inner faith. He mentioned the articles of faith, which reflect inner belief. Then Jibreel alayhi salam asked him about ihsan. That what's ihsan? So we believe that this is another progression. A progression from Islam to Iman and then from Iman to Ihsan. Islam is the external submission. Islam is a reflection of the external acts of religion. Apparent obedience of Allah. Apparent observation of the laws of religion. Iman is a reflection of all of that within. But what's Ihsan? A grade higher than Islam and Iman? The Prophet ﷺ replied by saying, Ihsan is أَن تَعْبُدَ اللَّهَ كَأَنَّكَ تَرَاهُ فَإِن لَمْ تَكُنْ تَرَاهُ فَإِنَّهُ يَرَاكَ Ihsan is that you worship Allah as though you see Him. And if not, that Allah sees you. Now, in order to understand this phrase and realize why it's the highest grade a believer can reach, we are very conscious about being watched and observed. <coughs> Once we are watched and observed, in any way, if we are in company, if there is someone in the vicinity, in the surroundings, then we are very careful of what we say, how we behave, what we do. Because we are very conscious, conscious of what others think of us, how others perceive us. And that's why we all have a mask. We have a persona. We have a certain costume for every occasion, for every moment of the day. We have a certain persona and costume and mask at work. Another set for the masjid. Another set for our close friends. Another set for strangers. And a completely different set for home. In fact, we could go as far as saying that we even have a costume and a mask and a persona for ourselves, even in privacy. 
Because we do not wish to face the reality of our own selves. That's why we're able to, that's where delusion comes in. We're able to deceive ourselves. We're able to convince ourselves. At times we believe in our own lie. Because we've got that costume and mask and that persona for ourselves, even in privacy. This is, what, this is where the beauty and the majesty of the name of Allah comes into play. That Allah is Sattar. That Allah is a great concealer. Allah conceals our faults. Allah shields our faults. Allah places a barrier between us and our closest ones. Imagine if our parents were to realize how their children really are. Imagine if it was the other way around. Imagine if the image of our parents, our beloved mothers and fathers, was shattered. For everyone is a human being. And that's why Allah says on Yawm Al-Qiyamah, Yawm Yafirru Al-Mar'u Min Akhih Wa Ummihi Wa Abihi Wa Sahibatihi Wa Banihi Likulli Mri'im Minhum Yawm Idhin Sha'nun Yughnihi On that day of reckoning, when man shall flee from his brother, and from his mother and father, and from his spouse, his wife, and his children, On that day, everyone will be in such a state that that state will render them heedless of others. And what day will that be? In one verse, Allah describes it with the words, يَوْمَ تُبْلَ السَّرَائِرْ فَمَالُهُ مِنْ قُوَّةِ وَلَا نَاصِرٍ On the day when the secret shall be exposed. On that occasion, he shall have no strength and no one to aid or assist him. So in the dunya, on earth, for our practical everyday living, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us satr. Allah has given us concealment and a shield and a protection that conceals the worst of ourselves from our loved ones, our parents, our children, our siblings. But we have to strike a balance. If we remember who we are and what we are, this will keep us humble. And we will avoid ghurur, delusion. If we overstep that mark of balance, if we overstep that center line, then we will be taking the concealment of Allah too far. For we will begin to believe in our own lie, in our delusion. And if we then begin to think of ourselves that there's nothing wrong with me, then what is there to correct or rectify? If we actually begin to believe of ourselves that I am not sinful, what is there to repent for? Or to seek forgiveness for? What is there to change? If we believe ourselves to be perfect, what is there to change? So the balance taught to us by Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is to accept the satr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, his concealment from others, so that we can live a practical life. And we can continue. But, not to be deluded, 
and to remember and realise who we are. So going back to what I was saying earlier, we are very conscious of what others think of us. And we adopt these costumes, these masks and these personas for many different situations, for many different people. And the moment we realise that we are being watched, observed, glanced at, even by strangers, we change the way we behave. Children do it. Toddlers do it. Infants do it. Babies do it. They've carried out immense research, lasting months and years, on babies and how they behave. Infants and toddlers, how they behave in the presence of other children, adults, their peers, in the presence of strangers, and sometimes attention-seeking, even lying, and actually believing in their own lies begins as early as four or five years old, sometimes even three. And lying can be sometimes learned behaviour. We, we have to be very careful, Allahu Akbar. This is why Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was present when a mother summoned her child. And she said to him, come here, come here, I'll give you something. And she was going to give him a date. And as parents do with children, come here, come here, I'll give you something. So she enticed the child. So when he came, she gave it to him. Rasulullah said to her, had you not given it to him, that would have been registered as a lie by Allah. Even with children. Children learn from our behaviors. Infants and toddlers observe our behavior, they learn. And this is why it's sad and tragic, but some some individuals grow up not only into teenagers, but into adults as habitual lies. And it's learned behavior. For them, lying is normal, just as lying was normal in the family setting. The father would lie, the mother would lie, the siblings would lie. So for them, that is the law of life. Lying is absolutely normal. Because it's learned, ingrained behavior. As I was saying, not just adults, but even babies and toddlers and infants are very conscious of being watched. And the moment they realize they are being watched, they actually change their behavior. In fact, you may have had experience, you may have been told of a child, very young infant, who is crying, wailing, as long as someone is in the vicinity. The moment there is no one around, the wailing stops, the crying stops. Because all of that crying and wailing is merely to seek attention. But if there is no one around to seek attention, whose attention they can seek, they stop. So that is actual behavior to arrest someone's attention. This is how conscious we are. We change our behavior, we modify our behavior in order, because of... The presence of others, the observation of others, the monitoring of others. This is why we observe the law. Related to you before, we were travelling once in London. And there was an 
Egyptian gentleman who was driving. And he said it was very late at night, approximately two o'clock in the morning. And we were at a large junction. It was dark. The lights were red. We were just waiting. And he's, there was only one other car in the dis, on the opposite side of the junction. No one else. And he said, subhanAllah. Out of the blue, he said, subhanAllah. He said, see, it's two o'clock in the morning. We're at a junction. It's dark. It's night time. There's no one around. Yet nobody, except for that one car, yet everybody observes the law. Nobody jumps the red lights. He said, in Egypt, we have traffic lights. Under the traffic lights, we have policemen standing. And the light says red, and people still go through. So I said, subhanAllah. I said, what does green... He said, he said in Egypt, red means go. So I said, what does green mean? They need to go faster. Fear of the law, fear of being watched, observed, fear of being penalized, even if it's just a 26 pound fine, it makes people behave. Imagine a person's behavior. If he or she was able to cultivate that awareness and that consciousness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not just that Allah is watchful over them at all times, but that they actually see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala all the time. Imagine their behavior. Imagine their connection with Allah azza wa That is the rank of ihsan. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, ihsan is that you serve Allah. I've mentioned before, ibadah in Islam isn't just about worship, ibadah means service. And that's throughout the day, for all moments of one's wakefulness and existence, not just the ritual acts of salah and hajj or fasting at all times. So ihsan is that you serve Allah as though you see him, and if not, then that he sees you. I mentioned that this is similar to taqwa. This is where I started. So taqwa is not identical, but it's very similar to the rank of ihsan. How? Because taqwa is total consciousness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When a person is constantly aware and conscious of Allah, that will act as a guard and a prevention from disobeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and therefore earning the displeasure of Allah. And that's what the fast is. So siyam is taqwa itself. And siyam creates extra taqwa. How is siyam taqwa? If a person properly observes the fast, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala places this barakah in fasting. And this reminder in a person's heart and mind. During the fast, just before a person has the impulse of committing a sin, or doing something wrong, or saying something wrong. Deep down in our conscience, deep down spiritually, in our mind and heart, there will be a reminder and a warning that you are fasting for the sake of Allah. 
And if a person heeds that reminder, then hopefully they will desist. They will stop. That will act as a break on their impulse. And what a good way of understanding how the fast is taqwa itself. How can the fast act as taqwa, i.e. as a guard against disobedience? Think of the fast, the siyam, as being no different to salah and the hajj. How? When a person goes for umrah or for hajj, then one can't just stroll into Mecca. One has to pass at the border, i.e. not the official, political, legal borders, but the border of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the miqat. One has to pass that border in a certain state, in a certain uniform, which is in two simple pieces of cloth and with the intention and in the state of ihram. So, when a person embarks on a journey of pilgrimage, of umrah or for hajj, they enter into the sacred state of ihram. And ihram means... To make something haram, it means consecration. That's what ihram means. It means consecration, sanctification. So when a person goes for hajj or for umrah, they enter into a sacred state. That, a similar sacred state, once they enter into that sacred state, normal things that are halal become haram. Once that sacred state of ihram ends, those normal things that were previously halal and were only temporarily haram are now also halal again. But there's another thing. The person was in a sacred state. So in Arabic, not only do you call other things halal, when a person comes out of that sacred state of ihram, that person is also referred to as halal. So in Arabic, you actually say, وَهُوَ halal," meaning, he is halal, i.e. he's come out of the state of ihram. So ihram is a sacred state. Look at salah. When a person begins their salah, and they pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, until the moment they say the takbir, they can do lots of things. They can eat, drink, they can face any direction, they can speak. But the moment they say the takbir, that marks the beginning of the sacred state of salah. That's why the first takbir is known as takbiratul tahrim, or it's also known as takbiratul ihram, meaning the takbir of consecration, the takbir of sanctification, the takbir of prohibition. That first takbir marks the moment when that person enters into the state of ihram for salah. Things that are normally halal, are now haram. You can't eat or drink or speak during the salah. And it's all temporary. The moment you say, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, twice, and according to some ulama, only once, you end your salah, you now again become halal. Those temporary haram things once again become halal. Now when a person is in salah, they are conscious of their salah. When a person is in ihram, they are conscious of their being in ihram. One should not think of siyam, of fasting, as being any different. 
Once a person makes the intention and begins the fast, they are in a sacred state, just like a haji is in a sacred state in Umrah or Hajj, in Ihram, and just like a person praying Salah is in a sacred state. These are all sacred states for fasting, for prayer, for Hajj and Umrah. So when a person is in a sacred state of fasting, they think of that fast in that manner, they are conscious of it, then this consciousness, the realization that they are in a sacred state, that will act as a deterrent. It will prevent them from committing sins. No matter how a person is outside salah, whilst they are in salah, the majority of people behave. And they won't do anything. In ihram, it's not that easy, because there's greater time. You're talking about many days. With siyam, with fasting, again, it's not as easy as salah, but it's more it's easier than hajj. Because you've got the sacred states lasting a whole day. But if a person has that awareness and that consciousness, then the fast will prevent them from committing a sin. If they are about to glance at something that they shouldn't. And immediately there's a faint reminder that far away distant voice that's telling them you are fasting then hopefully they can desist. They can prevent themselves from committing a sin. And this is why not only do we have that reminder in our hearts and minds, but we should constantly remind ourselves. In that famous hadith, which I commented on in detail, reported by Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, that when one of you is fasting, وَإِذَا كَانَ يَوْمُ الصَّوْمِ أَحَدِكُمْ فَلَا يَرْفُثْ وَلَا يَسْخَبْ فَإِنْ سَابَهُ أَحَدٌ أَوْ قَاتَلَهُ فَلْيَقُلْ إِنِّي مُرُؤٌ صَائِمٌ Prophet وسلم says, when one of you is fasting on any given day, then let him not be lewd, vulgar, rude, offensive, indecent in his speech. And nor should he shout. But if someone abuses him, فَإِنْ If someone verbally abuses him, I swear at him, and thereby provokes him. Or, or qatala, or actually quarrels with him, i.e. tries to physically grapple with him or quarrel with him. Then, what should this person say? I am a fasting person. Inni mru'um sa'im. I am a fasting person. And in one narration of Bukhari, the Prophet ﷺ says he should say it twice. Inni mru'um sa'im. Inni mru'um sa'im. I am a fasting person. I am a fasting person. Now here, amongst the ulama and the commentators of hadith, there's a very interesting discussion. Which is, should he say these words, that I am a fasting person, I am a fasting person, should he say them loudly or should he say them silently, i.e. in his heart? So many ulama, many of the classical commentators of hadith, and many of the classical ulama are actually of the opinion that he should say these words, that I am fasting, I am fasting, only in his heart, i.e. not verbally. What that shows, although other ulama say no, he should say it loudly, what that shows is that this message, that I am fasting, I am fasting, is meant more for the fasting individual than it is for the provocateur, the one who is provoking 
The idea is to maintain that consciousness of the fast, that I am fasting, I am fasting, this is my test, this is my discipline. Even though he is abusing me, swearing at me, quarreling with me, maybe even attempting to physically grapple with me, in all instances, I should be aware, I should be conscious of my fast, and I should be the better person, the more patient person. So the message is more for oneself than the other person. This is what I mean by a constant reminder and a continuous consciousness and a constant awareness of the state of fasting. If a person is able to maintain that awareness, then alhamdulillah, that fast will act as taqwa, a word which the Prophet ﷺ describes as shield throughout the ahadith. How does the Prophet ﷺ describe the fast? In fact, at the beginning of this hadith, he says, وَالصِّيَامُ جُنَّةِ And fasting is a shield. This is the meaning of shield. That it's taqwa. Because as I said earlier, taqwa means a guard. As a noun, it means a guard. As a, ver- a verbal noun, it means to guard. So a shield is, is a taqwa. A barrier is a taqwa. So the shield is taqwa. Fasting is a shield. Fasting is taqwa. It's full of taqwa. It creates more taqwa. And Ramadan, how does it create more taqwa? How can fasting be a form of taqwa itself? I've just explained how it's a form of taqwa. But in Ramadan, especially, and during the fast, this training, this training to be aware, this training to refrain from food and drink and desires, this training to desist from all things displeasing to Allah, this abstention from food and drink and haram things, haram thoughts, haram intentions, haram deeds, haram acts, haram speech, even haram emotions. In a hadith, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal rahmatullahi relates his hadith from a Bedouin Sahabi radiyallahu anhu, whose name we don't know, but he was one of the companions of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He actually couldn't read or write being a Bedouin. So he approached some people with a piece of paper and he said, Can anyone, is there anyone who can read? Is there anyone who can read? He had leather, a patch of leather. So someone said, I can read. And then uh, there was something written in there about Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So they realized that this was a companion of the Messenger of Allah. So they asked him, have you ever heard anything from the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? What he had written didn't, wasn't his, meaning these weren't his words. Someone else had written it, and he just wanted it read. But when they realized that he is a companion, they said, have you heard anything from the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? And he said, yes. So they said, can you relate it to us so eagerly, with such zeal? So he said, the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, said, and this was a hadith. The fast of the month of patience, i.e. Ramadan, 
and fasting for three days of each month. This removes wahar al-sadr, the malice of the heart. Taqwa fasting purifies, it cleanses. And I mentioned this hadith in relation to what I said a moment ago, that even abstaining from haram emotions, it's haram to feel hatred or malice or envy or arrogance and pride in one's heart. Islam isn't just about abstaining from haram deeds. Sins are sins. Whether they are sins of the limbs, or whether they are sins of the eyes, or sins of the mind, or sins of the heart. And the sins of the heart are the most difficult to control. Followed by the sins of the mind. Followed by the sins of the tongue. Followed by the sins of the limbs. Sins of the limbs that we frown on they are actually easier to control and to refrain from than the sins of the speech, sins of the tongue, sins of the mind, and sins of the heart. So when we are fasting, that sacred state means the fast of every part of our body. Not just the stomach and the throat, not just the gut and the mouth, but the fast of the tongue, the fast of the eyes, the fast of the ears, the fast of the mind, and the fast of the heart. So all of these, if a person observes a fast in that manner, undoubtedly that fast will be a shield. It will be taqwa. And it will create, it will create a momentum. It will create taqwa. The fitter a person is, the more they train and exercise, the fitter they become. They don't lose that energy, they create energy. Similarly, with fasting. Fasting is taqwa itself, but it's a kind of training. When a person spends a whole day in the state of fast and observes the fast properly, that will create even more greater reserves of taqwa in that person to be used for the future. Taqwa leads to more taqwa. Good leads to good, sin leads to sin. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Layl, فَأَمَّا مَنْ أَعْطَى وَاتَّقَى وَصَدَّقَ بِالْحُسْنَى فَسَنَيَسِّرُهُ لِلْيُسْرَى وَأَمَّا مَنْ بَخِلَ وَاسْتَغْنَى وَكَذَّبَ بِالْحُسْنَى فَسَنَيَسِّرُهُ لِلْعُسْرَى As for one who gives, وَاتَّقَى and is conscious of Allah, وَصَدَّقَ بِالْحُسْنَى who attests to the beautiful thing, i.e. Islam, the beautiful truth. What will Allah do in return? فَسَنَيَسِّرُهُ لِلْيُسْرَى we shall ease him unto ease. Meaning, we shall guide him even to greater good. And as for those who have found guidance, Allah increases them in guidance. And Allah grants them their taqwa. So, hidayah leads to hidayah. Iman leads to Iman. Good leads to good. Taqwa leads to greater Taqwa. But sin leads to sin. As Allah says, and as for one, man bakhil, who is stingy, wastaghna, and who considers himself independent and needless of Allah, 
وَكَذَّبَ بِالْحُسْنَى And who rejects the beautiful truth, what will Allah do? فَسَنُيَسِّرُهُ لِلْعُسْرَى We shall ease him into difficulty. I.e., these things lead a person, they create a momentum for more disobedience. That's why every good deed makes a subsequent good deed easier. Every sin makes a subsequent sin easier. وَمَنْ يُشَاقِقِ الرَّسُولَ مِنْ بَعْدِ مَا تَبَيَّنَ لَهُ الْهُدَى وَيَتَّبِعْ غَيْرَ سَبِيلِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ نُوَلِّهِ مَا تَوَلَّى وَنُصْلِهِ جَهَنَّمْ وَسَاءَتْ مُصِيرًا Allah says, and as for one who contradicts the Messenger of Allah, who opposes the Messenger of Allah, even after guidance having become clear for him, and who follows a way other than the way of the believers, and the believers here normally refers to the noble companions, عنهم, the Prophet وسلم, and his companions, the true believers. So Allah says, whoever opposes the Messenger of Allah after the truth and guidance having been become clear for him and adopts or follows a path other than the path of the believers, what will happen? Allah says, نُوَلِّهِ مَا we shall turn him in the direction to which he has turned himself. I.e., we shall propel him. If he adopts a certain path, we shall push him and propel him along that path. If he or she decides to adopt a path of waywardness and deviation, we shall push him and propel, we shall push them and propel them along that path. Way of good, we shall push them and propel them along that path. Because it's like anything else. I gave the example of exercise and fitness. Someone who has, who doesn't exercise, is not fit. If you put them on a certain course, they'll find it impossible to do. For those who do it regularly, it's child's play. And each act, each session, makes the subsequent one easier, until it becomes second nature. Good leads to good. Until a person can do good in such a way that it becomes part of their nature. Doesn't the Prophet ﷺ says, عَلَيْكُمْ بِالصِّدْقِ فَإِنَّ الصِّدْقِ يَهْدِي إِلَى الْبِرِّ وَإِنَّ الْبِرِّ يَهْدِي إِلَى الْجَنَّةِ وَمَا يَزَالُ الرَّجُلَ يَصْدُقْ وَيَتْحَرَّ الصِّدْقِ حَتَّى يُكْتَبْ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ صِدِّيقًا He says, adhere to truth, truthfulness and honesty. For indeed, honesty, truthfulness, guides a person to virtue. And virtue guides a person to Jannah. And then the Prophet ﷺ says, a man continues to speak the truth. And seek out opportunities for truth. I.e., a man continues to speak the truth and seek the truth. So much so that he is then he is registered by Allah as, a, as an extremely honest and veracious person. Then the hadith continues. And beware of lying. For lying leads to sinning. And sin, openly sinning. And openly sinning leads to the fire. And a man continues to lie. And seek lies. 
until he is registered by Allah as a kathab, meaning an excessive, impulsive, compulsive, serial liar. But the words of interest in both these hadith are in, in this one hadith is which means a man continues to speak the truth and seek the truth. And conversely, a man continues to lie and seek lie. Which means that when a person lies and lies more, lying not only becomes a habit, it becomes a necessity. It's like food and drink. They don't lie out of necessity. They don't lie out of self-preservation. They don't lie out of self-interest. They don't lie to protect themselves. They lie because they enjoy it. And where they don't even have to lie, they go out of their way to lie. And if they see no opportunity to lie, they actually seek out opportunities to lie. But when a person is truthful, Truthfulness is part of their nature. They are, they are full of sidq, which means that even when they have no need to speak the truth because of their good, honest nature, they speak the truth. You find some people, they can't lie even for their own good. They just cannot lie, even for their own good. And sadly, they are often the most mistreated and abused people because people take advantage of their goodness. They are too good for themselves. Too good for their own good. And they are those who lie. There's an anecdote that there was once a poet who was known to be a liar. So in the marketplace one day there was a group gathered around him and someone said to him, have you ever spoken the truth? And he said, to be honest, yes. One. Sorry, uh, yeah. Have you ever spoken the truth? So he said, yes. To be honest, yes, I have once. So someone was standing there and he said, that, even that's a lie. <laughs> even that's a lie. But anyway, the topic isn't about speaking the truth or lying. What I wish to share with you is the words of Rasulullah kadib. He seeks out truth, he seeks out lies. When good becomes part of one's nature, that's the path they travel. They seek good. And each good deed creates momentum for the subsequent good deed. And the next one becomes easier and easier and easier until it's effortless. Good deeds are effortless. Piety is effortless. And then frighteningly, when someone adopts the path of iniquity and sin and disobedience, each sin makes the subsequent sin easier. Each sin creates a momentum for the next sin until sinning against Allah becomes effortless. And not just effortless, but thoughtless. People don't even realize that they are sinning because it's become so deeply embedded in one's nature. So keeping all of this in mind, this is how siyam, fasting, which is full of taqwa or should be full of taqwa, creates taqwa. And he creates taqwa for the rest of the year. Interestingly, the Prophet ﷺ has encouraged us to observe certain fasts. Why? Fasting is a training period. And I'll say more about this in a moment. But it's interesting. He tells us that 
in a hadith related by Imam Muslim rahmatullahi alayhi in his sahih. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, Man saama Ramadan, thumma atba'ahu sitam min shawwal, kana ka siyam al-dahar. Whoever observes the fast of Ramadan, and then follows up the fast of Ramadan with the sixth fast of shawwal, kana ka siyam al-dahar. This will be like the fast of the whole year. Dahr means eternity. In some instances it can mean a year as it does here. How does that work? 30 fasts of Ramadan. Every fast is multiplied by 10. That's 300. Six fasts of Shawwal multiplied by 10, 60. That's fast of the whole year. And then in another hadith, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, The fast of the month of patience and the fast of three days each month is again the fast of dahr, meaning the whole year. Again, how does that work? For the one month of Ramadan, the fasts are not multiplied by ten, even if they are just left as thirty. And if the three days of fasting in each month multiplied by 11, barring the month of Ramadan, that's 330, along with the 30 days of Ramadan, that's 360 again. The idea is training. Training for the whole month of Ramadan. Training for three days of each month in the middle. Even better, coupled with that, the fast of Monday and Thursday. But even if someone doesn't manage that, just three days each month and right in the middle of the month, and if someone tries this throughout the year, this will be a period of training of taqwa, which will create momentum for taqwa for the person throughout the year. لَعَلَّكُمْ تَتَّقُونَ In the hope that you may attain taqwa. There's so much more that can be said. The coming month of Ramadan I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes it a month of forgiveness, mercy and blessing for all of us. Indeed, it's a month of blessing. In a number of hadith, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam uses a word, shahrum mubarak. He himself has used different words to describe Ramadan. In one hadith, قَدْ جَاءَكُمْ رَمَضَانْ شَهْرٌ مُبَارَكٌ In a hadith later by Imam Nasai, أَتَاكُمْ رَمَضَانْ شَهْرٌ مُبَارَكٌ Ramadan has come to you. A blessed month. And actually, at the end of this hadith, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa says, Allah has one night in this month, which is better than a thousand months, which is Laylatul Qadr. Man harima khayraha faqad harima khayra kullah. Whoever is deprived of good in this one night, he is deprived of all good. And in one narration, no one is deprived of the good of Laylatul Qadr, except the truly deprived. So it's a very blessed month. The Prophet has actually used that phrase to describe Ramadan himself. Shahrum Mubarak. He describes it as a month of patience. And in one narration, Fasting is half of patience. But the whole of Ramadan is described as a month of patience. There's a lot that can be said. I pray that Allah enables us to seize this opportunity. 
and enable us to better ourselves in the month of Ramadan, to discipline ourselves, the best period, the best time for achieving a lot. Make your resolutions now for the month of Ramadan. And what can those resolutions be? People say at the beginning of the year, I'll go to the gym, I'll exercise, I'll become fit. This is our time for making resolutions for spiritual fitness, for spiritual exercises, for becoming better, controlling our anger, curbing our desires, controlling our behavior, controlling our speech. That Fasting is a period of training for speech too. It should be. probably one of the most important lessons of fasting. And that's why, again, in that hadith, what does the Prophet ﷺ say? Fasting is a shield. So when one of you is fasting on any given day, what's the first thing he should avoid? The Prophet ﷺ doesn't say he shouldn't steal, he shouldn't hit, he shouldn't shed blood, he shouldn't attack anyone, he shouldn't commit sins. I with his limbs. The first thing the Prophet ﷺ says, that when any one of you is fasting on a given day, فَلَا يَرْفُثْ Let him not be offensive and rude with his speech. وَلَا يَسْخَبْ not, not even let... And he should not even raise his voice. So he tells us to control our tongue. Allah says that in the state of Hajj as well. فَمَنْ فَرَضَ فِيهِنَّ الْحَجَّ فَلَا رَفَثَ وَلَا فُسُوقَ وَلَا جِدَالَ فِي الْحَجِّ Whoever makes hajj obligatory upon themselves in these months, then, and what's the meaning of making hajj obligatory? Entering into the state of ihram. So Allah says, when a person enters into the sacred state of ihram, for hajj or for umrah, but here he means hajj, then what should he avoid? Again, Allah does not mention any of the sins of the body, the limbs, or anything else, Allah says, فَلَا رَفَثْ Let there be no lewd or offensive speech. Why does Allah say, remind us that we should, the first sin we should avoid in the sacred state of ihram, in hajj, is the sin of the tongue. No رَفَثْ Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, why does he remind us that in the sacred state of fasting, the first sin we should avoid is رَفَثْ lead offensive speech because this is one of the easiest things to sin with and Ramadan fasting is a perfect time to control our speech many people are disciplined by the swear box and it's very effective when people lose money it hurts it pinches so Children do this. I remember when we were studying. We were all young. 12, 13 years old. I just enrolled. And we slept in a dormitory. We were 14 people in our room. Seven bunk beds. And we had all come from different parts of the country. And all the children had brought their experience of life at home, life on the streets, life at school, from all different parts of the country. 14 people bringing all their experiences together. You had 14 people 
speaking in different accents, with different vernaculars, and using all kinds of language, and not all of us, but many of us in varying degrees, well, almost everyone, almost everyone, at some stage used foul language. Because it had almost become a habit. This is a language we picked up and people continue to pick up. In schools, in classrooms, on the streets, with friends. So we made a conscious decision that we all have to stop using foul language. And remember, in those days, 30 years ago, the threshold for what we considered foul language was quite high in the sense that speech which people consider normal, in our view, was deeply offensive. And we considered that to be foul language. So, Allah Akbar, we, we came up with an idea of a swear box. Of course, other people have thought of and implemented. We actually had a box of sadaqah in the corner of the room, right near the entrance. And every time someone used a bad word or foul language, the rest would gang up on him and force him to give some money. And students, they didn't have money in those days. So everyone had to put in a few coins. Allahu Akbar. Within a few weeks, and no exaggeration, possibly six weeks, every single person's speech in the whole room was pure. And it remained pure. It wasn't just the swear box that had that effect, but it was also the environment. Because we were now there studying Quran, Hadith. We were in the company of ulama and our teachers. And everyone had an effect on the other. But it's possible. And in the month of Ramadan, we should seize that opportunity. And it's not just about not swearing. In Islam, the sins of the tongue include foul language, abuse, swear words, backbiting, slander, gossip, rumor-mongering, tale-telling. In fact, we should weigh our words. Before we say anything, we should weigh our words. Uqbat ibn Amir radiyallahu anhu said to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Ya Rasulullah, man najah, what salvation? What is salvation? Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said to him, Amsik alayka lisanak wal yasa'ka baytuk wabki ala khatiyatik. Salvation is that withhold your tongue let your home confine you and weep over your sins. That's salvation. There are many hadith just about withholding a person's tongue. Control your tongue. The re- we may not think of it as being much. We may think that that's trivial. Speech has a dramatic effect on a person's behavior. We may not understand it. In fact, we, in a way, we don't understand it. 
But Allah testifies to that in the Qur'an. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam testifies to that in the Qur'an. In the Qur'an, Allah says a verse which we hear regularly. Again, it's about taqwa. Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu attaqullah wa qulu qawlan sadeeda yuslih lakum a'malakum. Allah says, O believers, be conscious of Allah. Wa qulu qawlan sadeeda and say a straight word. Say a straight word. What will Allah do in return for you saying a straight word? What will Allah give you in lieu of you saying a straight word? Yuslih lakum a'malakum. Allah will make good and pious your deeds. Your speech is straight, your deeds are straight. And Imam Tirmidhi rahmatullahi relates a hadith in his sunnah. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, each morning, Every organ of the body pleads with the tongue. Every organ, including the heart. The limbs of the body plead with the tongue. And say to the tongue, اِتَّقِ اللَّهَ فِينَا فَإِنَّمَا نَحْنُ بِكَ فَإِنْ إِسْتَقَمْتَ إِسْتَقَمْنَا وَإِنْ إِعْوَجَجْتَ إِعْوَجَجْنَا They say, O tongue, fear Allah and be conscious of Allah in relation to us. For we are as you are. Innama nahnu bik. We are as you are. The heart is saying, the, the feet are saying, the hands are saying, that we, the limbs of the body, O tongue, we are as you are. Then the hadith continues, If you are straight, we are straight. If you are bent, we are bent. And that's proven by the words of Allah. Say a good word. Say a straight word. Allah will make good and pious your teeth. If our speech is bent, our deeds are bent. If our speech is good and straight, our deeds are good and straight. So this is the time, this is an opportunity in the month of Ramadan. A time for disciplining ourselves, including controlling our speech. This is taqwa. لَعَلَّكُمْ تَتَّقُونَ Perhaps you may attain taqwa. I'll end with just one or two hadith about the month of Ramadan, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, إِذَا جَاءَ رَمَضَانَ فُتِّحَتْ أَبْوَابُ الْجَنَّةِ وَغُلِّقَتْ أَبْوَابُ النَّارِ وَسُفِّدَتْ الشَّيَاطِينَ When Ramadan arrives, the doors of Jannah are thrown open, the doors of Jahannam are slammed shut, and the shayateen are chained. In one narration, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, the doors of Jannah are opened, and no door is shut thereof. And the doors of Jahannam are flung are slammed shut and no door is opened thereof. And each night the ulama, the, the angels announce Ya baghi al-khayri aqbil wa ya baghi al-sharri aqsir. This is every night. What happens? The angels actually announce, the heralds of Allah proclaim to the world, O seeker of good, come forward. And O seeker of sin, desist. Walillahi utaqa'u min al-nar. And each night, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has many souls that he frees from the fire of Jahannam. Someone asked me the other day, what does this mean? That specifically each night, Allah frees people from the fire of Jahannam. Surely the month of Ramadan is about forgiveness anyway. And why each night? Well, this is in relation to those who are damned. Those who are damned and condemned to Jahannam, even for them, Ramadan is a month of mercy. 
and forgiveness. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala frees on the slightest excuse. This is why the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says that it's like a build-up, there's a crescendo on Laylatul Qadr. We have Sha'ban leading up to the month of Ramadan. In Sha'ban, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would fast. And then come the month of Ramadan, his activity would increase. You have the first 10 days, and the second 10 days, then you have the final 10 days. When the final 10 days arrived, the Prophet Aisha says that when the final 10 days of Ramadan would arrive, what would the Prophet do? He would remain awake, jad, he would strive, he would fasten his girdle, fasten his belt, and not only that, ahya layla, he would awaken his night. He would revive the night, he would give life to the night. He would keep the vigil all night long, and not just that, and he would awaken his whole family. He would stay awake all night himself, he'd ensure that his family would be awake. And this was in the final 10 days, and he would even do i'tikaf in the final 10 days of Ramadan. And all of this would be leading up to a crescendo, to the climax of Laylatul Qadr. Allah has given us so many opportunities. That's why Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam says that Allah has one night in this month which is better than a thousand months. مَنْ حُرِمَ خَيْرَهَا فَقَدْ حُرِمَ الْخَيْرَ كُلَّهَا Whoever is deprived of the good of this one night, he is deprived of all good. Meaning, Ramadan is our opportunity. If we cannot change, if we cannot better ourselves, if we cannot earn Allah's forgiveness, if we cannot earn good and forgiveness and Allah's mercy in this month, then when? Only a truly deprived person could be in such a state. And that's why in a very beautiful hadith related by Imam Hakim in his Mustadrak and by others, from Sayyidina Ka'b ibn Ujrah radiyallahu anhu. In fact, this incident is narrated by many companions radiyallahu anhum. But uh, this particular wording is by Imam Hakim in his Mustadrak from the companion Ka'b ibn Ujrah radiyallahu anhu. He says one day the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and it's an authentic hadith, he ascended the mimbar and he placed his noble foot on the first step and said, Ameen. Then he placed his foot on the second step and said, Ameen. Then he placed his foot on the third step and he said, Ameen. So when he then descended later, the companion said to him, O Messenger of Allah, today we saw something which we've never seen before, unprecedented. You said, Ameen, on each step. So the Prophet ﷺ said, Jibreel alayhi salam came to me. And he made three du'as. Every time I put a foot on the step of the member, he made the du'a and I said, Ameen. Second one and then the third one. So the three du'as were, the Prophet wasallam said, Jibreel alayhi salam said to me, Ba'udaman, may he be distanced, who finds the month of Ramadan, and then the month of Ramadan passes, and he has still been unable to earn his forgiveness from Allah. So I said, Ameen. Then the second step, may that person be distanced, in whose presence your name is mentioned, O Messenger of Allah. And he does not say Salat and Salam upon you. I said, Ameen. On the third step, may that person be distanced from the mercy of Allah, 
who finds one or both of his parents in this world and then he, he is enabled to earn Jannah through them. So I said, Amin. So again, Prophet, and may he be distanced, i.e., from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's a curse. So someone who finds a month of Ramadan and yet is unable to do any good, unable to earn forgiveness, unable to earn Allah's mercy in the month of Ramadan, then that person is mahroom. And even Jibreel alayhi salam cursed that person. And the Prophet ﷺ said, Ameen to the curse of Jibreel on his noble member. So this is an opportunity for us. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enables us to understand, may Allah make us amongst those who are able to earn Allah's rahmah, maghfirah, and in the month of Ramadan, and better ourselves. Wasallallahu wasallam ala abdihi wa rasulih nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik nashadu wa la ilaha illa ant. Nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk.